Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, I am Sam Fry, and welcome to the Technique Podcast. This is the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. Today, I am joined by two guests. Here they are. So I'm Carla Rappaport. I'm the founder and CEO of Luminart Projects, which owns the Lumen Prize. I'm Jack Addis, and I am the director of Luminart Projects. Yes, today's guests are Carla and Jack from Luminart's Projects. Most people will know them as the team behind the Lumen Prize for Art and Technology, which, if you don't know, celebrates the very best art created with tech. They do this through a global competition, exhibitions, and through worldwide events. Now, I first met Carla a couple of years ago at a digital art event organised by the Victorian Albert Museum's digital team at the Finnish Institute in London. Since then, I've enjoyed seeing the Lumen Prize develop, and it's great to have both Carla and Jack on this podcast to talk about the prize, how they're working with digital artists, and, well, the state of art today. So, here we go, into the interview. This one was recorded at IBM in London, and it starts with Carla talking a little bit about what got her interested in art and technology. I first became interested in art at the age of six when my mother took me to the Detroit Institute for Fine Art in Detroit, Michigan, and I stood before a Diego Rivero mural. So these murals take up the whole wall of one big room. And as a child, I was astonished that the things that were in little frames in my house could fill the whole room of a museum. And I've always been interested in the fact that these big pictures can tell stories. And my interest in storytelling actually led me to journalism, which is another form of storytelling. And I ended up in financial journalism, which was a way of trying to make a complicated world accessible to all kinds of people, to make our world a little bit more understandable. And at the end of that, uh, when I finished in that career, About 10 years ago, I was looking around for a way to combine my interest in technology with my love, lifelong interest in art and art that told stories. And I discovered this incredible genre of artists who create with technology. And to bring the two sides of my careers together, it seemed to make sense to launch a competition which would make all artists who create with technology better known and for more people to understand and enjoy art that was created with technology. Do you find your background in journalism informs much of what you do today? Every day, all the time, because journalists basically crank the wheel every day. They are learning a new topic to write about. They're not really experts. Not all of them are experts in everything. 
So they have to learn the subject in order to explain it well. So that informs every day I'm learning a new kind of art, a new kind of technology. Every year that we hold the prize, I learn about a new kind of technology that's used in creating the prize-winning work. So I'm able then to use the journalistic skills to make it accessible and understandable to our wider audience that we're hoping to build for this art. I've always been interested in the arts. I did a BA back in 2010 um, in fine art, and then that's where I started working with art and technology. So because I'm dyslexic, I got a laptop from the government for helping me with my studies. And being the typical classic student, I'd spent all my money having a great time and didn't have enough money to buy paints or, or the traditional media that was needed. So I started making work on my computer um, instead and uh, making films and images um, purely with the software on that computer. And then after I left university, I continued working on my practice and then moved to London and started an MA at UAL. It was called In Fine Art Digital. Um, it was a very broad-based subject about the practice working with technology and being an artist at the same time. And that is where I met Carla. But parallel to this, um, to be making money, I'd always been working as a gallery technician. By the time I met Carla, I was a gallery manager um, based in London as well. So I met Carla through my, my master's course at an exhibition that was held in the crypt in St Pancras Church, um, where Carla was or had taken all of the MA students as interns for this project. <laughs> and Jack really stood out. <laughs> I said, would you like to work for Lumen Prize? And he said, thankfully, he said yes. And we've been working together ever since. That was 2016. We started a company to represent artists and to support our artists called Luminar Projects, and that now owns the prize. So that's the development of the business that we've set up together. So how did the Lumen Prize, as a, as a starting point, how did that start? What, what was the process around that? I went to see the uh, exhibition that David Hockney did at the Royal Academy in 2012, four times. It was called The Bigger Picture, I think, was the name of that show. And he had quite a lot of works in that show that were made with iPads, and they were huge. And there was a room, a dark room with iPads on the wall, and I found myself explaining to people what they were looking at, how did he do it. And there was so much interest, and that was the most visited show the RA had ever staged at that point. And I realized that it couldn't just be David Hockney making this work. And I thought that if I could get some good uh, jury panel members and open up a free-to-download, not free, I mean, there'd be an entry fee, but anyone could just download their work to a website anywhere in the world, we could have a competition and see what happened. That was really just this very simple idea. And amazingly, 500 artists from around the world downloaded their work, and we were away. The quality of the work was good. It wasn't great, looking back on it, but it was good. And from that, I got interest from the, Chelsea, from the UAL, which led to the relationship with Jack, and lots of doors started to open when people looked at this work. So that's the sort of genesis of the prize. It based on a good jury panel, a, a website that any artist could upload their work to for a small amount of money, and uh, the willingness to take that work, as I did, to all, knock down all kinds of doors, and many doors opened. 
How's it evolved and then changed into what it's, what it's like today? It's changed a lot. It has changed a lot. When I thought about what I was doing back in 2012, it's very different to what I'm doing, Jack and I are doing now. At the time, I thought we were talking about works that would be output to print, additionalized and sold in galleries. That's really what I thought. When someone suggested moving image to me, I said, well, how would we judge that? That would be impossible. Seriously, that's how um, limited it was at the beginning. I thought it would be just like Hockney did. He created it on the iPad, then he output to print at all different. But really, people didn't want to buy those prints. We auctioned them off for charity in the first year, and I just saw one in a charity shop. <laughs> it had been given away. So we, you know, basically that didn't work. And what I found, what we found, what we discovered is there is a huge interest in the moving image work. And then there was a huge interest in something called interactive work. And then something called immersive was the first, before we got into VR, we called it immersive. Then we started calling it XR, which is AR and VR. And then we were launched into artificial intelligence in 2017, which was a new category for us, because new tools keep kept arriving. So the whole thing evolved very, very um, organically based on the new tech tools that kept showing up that artists like Jack and the others that he knows and we've been lucky enough to engage with, just eat up for breakfast. They just love these tools, and it informs how they look at their art. I think we are mirroring a development in the field that is wider. You don't see people using iPads, for example, which when we began, we even had courses for people to learn about iPad art. We don't even think about that now. And nobody really talks about iPad art. It's kind of disappeared. But when I started, that was a big deal, creating work on your iPad. So I, I think it has mirrored what's going on. I think as technologies become cheaper, more artists gain access to them. Therefore, there are more artists making work um, in a variety of ways, you know, with what is perceived as cutting-edge technology to your average visitor to a museum or a gallery. So therefore, the kind of democratization of that technology is, is so wide now that, you know, a student today versus a student five years ago has access to a lot more ways of making. Therefore, there's a lot, there's a larger variety and a, and a, and a, and a wider base of, of people working, you know, with art and technology. Having said that, I'd just like to add a little caveat. I was at an art and technology show yesterday at the Royal College of Art, and one of the pieces was using Connect technology, Microsoft Connect, which is pretty old. So there are some works that still use what I would consider vintage tech. I mean, that is true, but that's, that's where that, that technology came from and who it was made by. So you'd have communities of people playing video games with this depth sensor. And then they would also be perhaps students. I mean, how, how it worked at my university, they were also students, and there was a way to use that technology to make art as well. And, um, you know, it all comes, I suppose he's talking about the ways of making a tool, right? So people find it a little easier to buy that second-hand depth sensor than perhaps make a depth sensor themselves. When you start combining, um, you know, creative computing and design with arts, then that way you'll have people building their own kind of tool to make the work with. There's a an exhibition at the Barbican a few years ago now called Digital, Digital Revolution. Yeah, and yeah. that that had a number of connects. 
devices at the time. Yeah. I remember there was a there was there was a play on the film Inception. I think it was one of them. So your hand movement reflected the going through the layers of reality and. Um, in the same way as the movie, the movie show, there, there are a number of things. The, the most successful kind of interactive artworks are the ones that are generally the the easiest um, to to interact with, but also technologically the the smoothest that, that you know can handle a lot of people having fun with. I suppose that show I think was two thousand and fifteen, and it did tour, and artists who were involved in it were very honoured to be selected, but I, as a little aside, I, I know from the artists who were selected and who toured, they were not paid for the tour. So there's still a very much of a second rank or second citizen, because if the Barbican was going to tour a 2D show of pictures, you bet that there would be payments made. So there, I, I'm throwing this in as another little example of how, while it's been very exciting to watch the genre build, the marketplace hasn't developed at the same pace and the contemporary art world's view of it is evolving more slowly. And do you think that's something that you see changing? Yes. I mean, that is definitely one of the goals of Luminart Projects, is to change that perception and to build marketplaces for this work for the artists and a secondary marketplace, which is really important too. If you want a gallery to sell your work, then the person who buys it wants to be able to sell it back to the gallery and find another home for it should they move or die or whatever so that's how it has to develop but for another reason why it's changing is not so much the exciting development of the genre it's because the demographics of the people who buy art is changing and what people who are 60 and 70 thought was beautiful is very different than what people who are the new wealthy the 30s and 40s somethings think is beautiful i guess it's similar for some of the museums as well and, and yes. the galleries. Yes. There seems to be an increasing number of them showing yes. digital work. Is that something that you're yes. you're seeing and and yes. do you want to talk about that a little? Well maybe Jack would like to talk about I think museums are interested in engaging with new audiences. And this kind of work definitely brings new audiences. Maybe you could talk a little about... You're right. They are interested in engaging new audiences and retaining the audiences they have and widening that audience base. And it's kind of a minefield, really, because you have the idea that if we put on this great kind of spectacle show um, and it's it's a blockbuster hit and it's great for Instagram and then then it leaves, you know, what was the kind of impact of that? What was, was there any learning? Was there any audience development? So the museums are very conscious now to try and build programs around anything that is made with art and technology to say that um, this isn't some far away, you know, thing that you will never be able to do. You know, every, people are able to paint and when they look at paintings, they, they can relate to that. But when there's, say, an idea of a piece of work with a connect, you know, how can they, there's, there's a different kind of learning process there and interaction that happens. So. It's, it's quite a holistic approach I think a lot of museums are having with this and it's hard, they, they're moving away from the idea of the spectacle I suppose of this grand amazing piece of work that is kind of untouchable um, to something that's much more localised and easy for people to get more from I think. And we're working with uh, smaller communities on community involved art. We have a group of artists who like to engage with getting all ages to contribute to the work so it has a organic aspect to it and so grandma might do a piece and the grandson might do a piece and then they bring other members of the family to come and see it as part of a bigger work 
getting back to those murals on the walls that I talked about earlier, you know, you can do that with projections and individual creations through coding. So it's not Diego Rivera, but it's the modern idea of transforming the walls into stories. And that's now happening in a lot of smaller communities where they want to engage locally. Um, I find that really exciting. But Jack's right. There is an Instagrammable aspect to this. And there are what I, what I think Jack and I call Instagram art museums that are springing up, especially in the U.S. I went to one in Washington And it was pretty aimed at you using your phone and promoting it for free. (laughs) Having said that, the next show that was coming to that space is one of the best artists in the world in this. So while they might have, you know, cherry blossoms season one time and it's just really for pictures, the next time they might have something amazing because that artist can't find another genre to show his or her work in. I remember I did see a talk at one point a few years ago from one of the leaders at the British Museum, and I remember them saying that there are the British Museum is the most selfied place wow. in I think in London or it might be in the UK. Wow! And actually, they've recognised that and they thought, well, how do we how do we use that? How do we make the most of that? If so many people are coming here taking selfies with all kinds of objects and. Um, pieces in the British Museum because a lot of people are naturally tourists that are coming into London for instance then how how do we engage with that and, and use that to our benefit? I mean many many traditional art gallery or museums used to never allow photography you know and then when the National Gallery removed its ban on taking pictures with your phone in the museum I mean no one really enforced the ban but then when they said you know we want pictures to be taken it was a like a a big sea change in a way because the idea of sharing the work when you being there is obvious now but I suppose before it was kind of behind the door and you went into this quiet kind of almost religious space where you looked at this massive picture on this beautiful white wall and it was kind of a a religious experience in a way but now it's more you know you, you see people walking around taking the picture of each painting and leaving so it's a very different way to digest art for your average museum visitor also sharing it to share to your friends i'm here and that experience hey look where i am and look what i've just seen Mm. i enjoy that i i'm a keen user of instagram and i enjoy seeing where my friends have been to museums and which pictures they've been moved by and i like sharing things i've seen i hate it i (laughs) I recently went to the van gogh exhibition at the tate britain and I was tutted at by someone behind me because I was spending too long looking at a, at a painting and they just kind of stood in front of me, took a photo and, and just walked around to the next one. It's a, it's a strange dynamic that now is happening in, in, in uh, art, museums. Art museums, yeah. Well, we're really lucky to have another colleague of Jack's programme who was born in Shanghai Gigi Guan, and she has set up a business in Shanghai to promote this kind of art, and through her business has found us some amazing opportunities, some of the most incredible opportunities for Lumen artists. And in Chengdu last year, we had four commissioned works that were outdoor works by four, four Lumen artists, which was extremely exciting for us. We couldn't have done that without her. 
And she's had us um, in shows in Beijing, uh, Shanghai, and we're working on some more opportunities with her. Shanghai seems to be a very dynamic market. So that's exciting. Um, we also have someone in the U.S. who's um, getting us a show in Pennsylvania in the new year, and we're working on bringing shows to... Um, we have a, a partner we're developing in Bulgaria, and in the Middle East we're developing a partnership. So it's very much um, a global business in terms of reaching out to partners and partnerships around the world. We'd like to find a home for Lumen, and a place where artists can do residencies. So we're looking gently, not you know avidly, but we're looking gently for a partner that might be, say, a regional museum or a regional art venue that would like to have us as a partner. So I see it that as our sort of five, three to five year goal. Yeah, I mean, we we focus on a few different areas um, with the events that we make, whether that's hosting and creating contemporary exhibitions around art and technology, whether that's working with our partners to produce pieces of public art for a set amount of time, whether that's working to, as Carla mentioned, create kind of community-based art and technology events or programs. So there's a, there's a few strands that we try, and, we try and achieve with the main goal of kind of getting artists' exposure and bringing art and technology to as wide audiences as possible. And looking forward into the future, Carla's right, it would be great to have a home where we were able to host artists for them to develop their practices in whatever way they choose and to keep you know, building relationships with new partners and existing partners to share the fruits of that, those kind of periods of research so that we are at the forefront of what is exciting and new, not only for the artist, but also for the audience as well. I'd also say, like to say that um, we would be very open to that being with a company. It wouldn't have to be an art institute. I mean, it could be IBM. <laughs> I'm not saying it should be, but it could be a partnership with someone that makes tech, for example. Someone so, who builds houses. Or someone, who, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, or a commu- it could be a council, like um, a regional borough council that decided they had a disused space and they wanted us. So we're keeping our eyes and ears open. But when we think about our development, it isn't the first, that isn't the first thing we think about. The first thing we think about is the commissions Jack talked about that we do with our partners, our exhibitions and festival work that we work on. And I think in time, we'll develop this relationship, which will lead to, I hope, a permanent home for the prize for the project, for Luminar Projects. One thing we are not is we do not seek art council or art grant funding. And that is a big difference between a lot of art groups in the UK in particular. Uh, as you know, as I said at the beginning, I'm an American and we don't have that kind of funding where I come from, so I'm not familiar with it. But I also feel it creates a kind of dependency on the funding or grant-giving bodies that isn't necessarily good to the creative process. But having said that, because we have chosen, or I've chosen, Jack might take it differently when he takes over in a few years' time, but as I've chosen not to pursue that route, that means we do scramble in order to pay our bills and make sure that everything's um, going fine on the business side. But it is different, and so I wanted to point that out that so far 
we've only had one small grant for um, a show in Caerphilly Castle, which worked out really well. But I spent my whole summer writing the grant and then writing the review of the grant. <laughs> I'd much rather be working with artists. And making sure that we pay them. Um. Than, than to be working with funding bodies. So I just wanted to say that was one thing we don't do. And I think there should be art groups out there that can say that proudly and say, we'd like to engage with the Arts Council as networking opportunities and to try and meet, make partnerships, but we don't necessarily need you or want you for funding. There should be a way of using their networks without actually accessing their funds. And at the moment, there isn't. You either have to access their funds to get their networks or you're outside their Perfume, and I think that's a little exclusive. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Better get out of my side, boy. I tell you, I'm a busy man. Tell it to the judge on Sunday, and I'll do what you can. So that was Carla and Jack from the Lumen Arts Projects. Thank you very much to both of them for being part of this episode. And hopefully there'll be some news soon about something that I'm working on them with. That will be happening later in the year. In the meantime, that's all we've got time for this episode. And I'd like to thank you once again for listening. And hopefully you'll come back again next month. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to these podcasts on whatever podcast platform you listen through. And if you want, you can also follow us on Twitter, which is at Technique UK. Thanks again to everyone that made music for this show. And I look forward to speaking to you next month. See you soon. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. 